Welcome to the Exvangelical Therapist Podcast. I am your host, A, and this is a podcast about the intersections of evangelicalism, exvangelicalism, mental health, and social justice. You might hear a color commentator in the background, and that is little A, my cat, and she loves to provide a little color commentary here and there. I hope you enjoy. I decided to start off the first season of the podcast talking about the history of evangelicalism. And here's why. Because I'm a therapist. And as therapist, for our first session that we do, we do something called an intake session. And that's taking down a person's history so that we can understand what brought them to the point where they're at today. So for us to understand where evangelical is coming from today then we also need to understand the historical context, which is why I'm giving these brief history lessons about evangelicalism and how it led up to today. So for this episode, I am going to be talking about the Great Awakenings. There was a first and second Great Awakening, and they resulted from the wane of the Puritan movement. So the reason why the Puritan movement started waning in the colonies was because of the Age of Enlightenment. So the Age of Enlightenment started coming about because wealth was growing and communities began to realize, hey, we can actually uh, have an identity outside of religion. Because before that, in Westernized society, religion was looked at as a fundamental part to a person's identity. So that started to get rejected. And along with that rejection, there was a rejection of uh, fanaticism and superstition. And people were wanting to look at concepts based on facts and science and reason and question what is true. So not all people who were into the Enlightenment were atheists. There were people who were deists. There were people who were agnostics. And with the deists, that's really where this direction of religion was going. And we call it today as theistic evolution, where it is a belief that there is a supreme human being that created the universe, then let it go. And with this, because they believed that this could be the case because they're like, well, maybe there is a God because this place is pretty cool. But they were starting to question, if there really is a God, then why do we have all these disasters? Why do we have all these really awful things happen? You know, why do we have disease and and famine? And so there were all these questions that if there was a God and a God who was good, why would God be allowing these things to happen? Which is why they believed that maybe there was a God, but God just created the world and then let it go. And then the world started operating based on reason and natural laws without divine intervention. And so these deists believed that there was no need for religion or faith beliefs as everything could be proved through reason, even Let's take, for instance, the spread of disease or bad things happening, disasters happening. They also rejected the ideas of the virgin birth, the Trinity, 
and the Eucharist because they saw these as being superstition and fanaticism. And these were things that could not be explained by reason. So a lot of this was based on the premise of that questioning of the goodness of God because of the existence of evil in the world and questioning God's perfection since the world is imperfect. Um, it was very interesting what, what Voltaire wrote. He wrote, man has always needed a break. If God did not exist, he would have to be invented. I just want to read that one more time because it's so interesting to me. Man has always needed a break. If God did not exist, he would have to be invented. So this is Voltaire's agnostic way of saying that man invented God because Otherwise, then all of the responsibility and accountability would have to rely on man. And that is not always possible, and that can be exhausting, which is why man invented God. So that was Voltaire's philosophy, and a lot of people latched on to these ideas at that time. Starting in the 1730s, and going until the 1770s, there was the first Great Awakening. And why this happened was because religious thinkers were looking at the Enlightenment unfolding. And they started realizing that this was going to cause potential collapse to systems that they had created, including political systems that they had created. So they were feeling threatened. So they felt threatened by the Enlightenment because of this lack of fanaticism. And the fanaticism, going back to the start of the colonies, it, it was the premise of the colonies. The Puritans were fanatics, so much so that they basically got ousted out of Europe, which is why they came to the colonies. So if there was a rejection of fanaticism, it could cause a collapse of the colonies as they knew it, the culture, the political system, so much. So there was this revival of Protestant ideals, and it was based on to be truly repentant of sins because they didn't see people in the age of the Enlightenment as being truly repentant. They thought that maybe people are being apologetic but then they're following things up by saying, well, reason. And they didn't think that that was the ideal. And they believed that people needed to be more devoted to God. And they were pushing this idea that maybe there was disease and violence out there in the world and loss because of this lack of devotion to God. So they started spreading these ideas about if you are more devoted to God, then we wouldn't be having these bad things happen. So this isn't about God not being a good God. This is about you not being a good person. And this is still something that is talked about so much in Christianity today whenever people push back and ask, 
well, then why is God good if, you know, we have mass incarceration, if we have all these people who died of COVID and et cetera? And then the evangelicals come back and they push back and say, well, it's because of you. And because that that seems like something that could be changed. And so because of that, then it leads to this element of control that is needed to keep the system going. So with this first great awakening, it really paved the way for the constitution. And the founding fathers were involved in this first great awakening as well, because the way that these leaders spoke in the first great awakening was very moving, whether you believed in God or not. So, and these ways that it uh, paved for the constitution was because evangelicalism looked at uh, religion as being a form of democracy. Hold on, Arabella, my little cat here is wanting to speak into the microphone. So we'll, we'll see what, what she does here. But um, yeah, and so this goes back to the root of Protestantism, where they were converting people in the masses to Protestantism, because they were saying, this is for the people. And Catholicism is for the elites. And that's how they had all these conversions. So they were repackaging these ideas for the colonies, and it turned out to be very effective. They were promoting equality, or what they called equality. And this equality that they were talking about was through economic and westernized religion, and that you could practice westernized religions and not get persecuted for it. But let me emphasize westernized religion, (laughs) right? It it couldn't be any other kinds of faith-based if you were going to be accepted. Also, there was not the uh, equality of race. There wasn't gender equality. There wasn't equality for who you loved. So there was a lot of lack of equality. But at that time, it was a somewhat perceived equality. Let's just say equality among um, white cis men. It promoted leadership rather than monarchy, which was also a really fundamental part to the first great awakening, paving the way for the constitution. So I wanted to talk about a couple of prominent figures in the first great awakening, and that was Reverend John Edwards and also um, George Whitefield. So Reverend Jonathan Edwards, I have been asked before if I am related to him because my last name is Edwards. And for the record, I am not. I looked at the genealogy just to make sure and just wiping my brow here. Thank goodness. I am not. (laughs) Uh, There are a lot of Edwards out there. So anyhow, so here's the background on John Edwards here. So John Edwards was a Yale graduate, and he went on to become the third president of Princeton University. So he's a very bright guy. And he wasn't always 
a Christian. He was influenced by the Puritans and reformists whenever he was converted at the age of 18. So he's this young guy. He's 18 years old and he converts. And then he is like, hey, I am going out there into the world now. And I think that I actually want to do this for my life. I, I think that I want to be evangelizing to people as my career. So he started pulling in from influences of the the first reformers, but then he started putting on his own spin to it. And he was really this first hell and brimstone fire preacher that we know of. And his sermons are still quoted today in evangelical churches, uh, particularly the sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yeah. What a title, right? Um, I don't know why that was a catching title for people to want to go here. He preached it three times because that's how many people he converted after the first time, then the second time, then the third time. And this was based on this verse in the Bible called Deuteronomy 32, 35. And it goes like this. Their foot shall slide in due time. So basically his interpretation of this is that, okay, colonies, you are succeeding right now, but you are not going to continue succeeding because you are not truly repentant in my eyes, and you are not devoted to God. And so he was creating this fear-based messaging where it was really getting to people. People were starting to get very afraid that they wouldn't succeed. And around this time too, the colonies were really thinking about becoming independent from England. So there was already this fear and they really, really wanted to succeed. And so now they're hearing this kind of prosperity gospel and they don't have to rely on reason anymore. They can rely on something called faith and then boom, magic. And, uh, you know, and, and then there's this passion and then they can be able to get what it is that they want. And that's a, a, a country that is free from the crown. So then people are like, sign me up for this. And he was preaching a lot about this acceptance and affirmation of God, but that a person could only be accepted and affirmed by God if they were repentant of wrongdoings and if they were truly devoted to God. But again, it was what was within his mind or the very fundamentalist evangelicalist mindsets that really set the framework for what they thought was being truly repentant. And he blamed New England on being immoral and that a lot of this immorality that he called it was self-sufficiency. He called self-sufficiency immoral, (laughs) which is just hilarious, right? But at the same point, this mirrors what is going on in evangelicalism today, 
where self-sufficiency and independence is frowned upon. So evangelicalism is framed in such a way to be relying upon each other in this communal type structure, but at the expense of people losing their autonomy. So he developed this and it still has these echoes today. So he had this um, this sermon series called Justification by Faith Alone. And then this is where the sinners of the hands of the angry God came in. And he had a lot of other concepts like the inspiration of Helen Brimstone preaching, the fear-based preaching that ended up becoming very influential to mass conversions today. And because a lot of times whenever people are talking about the way that they were converted, it is based on being afraid, being afraid of hell and going there. So George Whitefield, let's talk about him for a moment here. He was literally kicked out of England because his preaching was so over the top. England was like, you know what? We can't deal with this guy anymore. Let's send him over to the colonies. You know, but this is a story of of the Puritans. People were getting kicked out of England and other European countries for being fanatics and rebel rousers in a way that was cult-like. And George Whitefield, it was like he was starting a cult in his own right. He wasn't a trained minister. He was a trained actor. And as such, whenever he would preach, it would be like, he was an actor on stage. He would weep. He would tremble. He would shout. Whenever I think back to my days of growing up in the Southern Baptist Church, I remember so distinctly hearing a lot of fist pounding on the pulpit or other objects around. I remember shouting. I remember um, crying. But my family was was a first pew family. My family would always sit in the first pew. And whenever I would look at these pastors and they would seem like they were crying, it was dry tears every single time. And I have heard a lot. <laughs> I have heard a lot of sermons um, over the years whenever I was growing up Baptist. And so this acting type approach is still something that carries on through different evangelical traditions, particularly the Baptist tradition. So Benjamin Franklin, who is a known skeptic and atheist, he once emptied his coin purse after being so moved by Whitefield's words. Like, that is just how good of a performer this guy is. And you think about it today and the pastors today, I mean, they're, they're amazing performers. And I think that's what really has pulled a lot of people into this. So also, um, if you hear my cat in the background, she is just chilling over here right next to me. And, uh, she's, um, yeah, just trying to be super cute right now. But um, yeah, so George Whitefield, it's so wild because he was so loved by Americans. 
that during the Revolutionary War, his dead body was literally dug up so that these revolutionary soldiers could take scraps of his clothing, believing that God would be close to them and protect them and help them win the war. And this is a very morbid concept, but at the same point, there were a lot of evangelicals then. There are evangelicals today who believe that whenever they are taking the Eucharist or communion, whatever they call it, that they believe that that is turning into the body and blood of Christ in their mouth. So what can I say? There is some morbidity to the story of the history of evangelicalism. As for the Second Great Awakening, it arose out of a sense of panic. It started in the 1790s and went into the 1830s. So this was approximately 15 to 20 years after the American Revolution. And then the evangelicals at the time were like, oh shit, look at our constitution that says that there has to be a separation of church and state, except we really want this country to be evangelical. But the whole reason why they had this separation of church and state in the constitution was because if we look back at the start of Protestantism, it was a mess and it was chaos. Every time there would be this change of leadership, then there would be a Catholic leader. Then it would change the dynamics of, of the religion. Then there would be a Protestant leader. And then that would also change the dynamics of the religion. And even whenever there was a Protestant leader, then sometimes they would have to follow a very specific format of, um, of these services because the leaders were fighting against being zealous. So because of this, this is why they wrote this into the constitution because they wanted to be able to lead their religion in a way that had no barriers. But uh, let me make this more clear. It was about freedom of westernized religion and not, let's say, indigenous spiritual practices that was not accepted. So with the origin of the Second Great Awakening, this was a fundamental part of it. They were trying to make this new nation an evangelical nation. And then the second part of it was that there was really a rise of evangelical Methodists and Baptists, and they needed to keep growing in, in their mindset. And so they started doing this by having a lot of revivals. And these revivals spread from the East all the way out to the West. And they would happen in these uh, big open areas. Sometimes these areas would have as many as 20,000 people and they would come from all, all areas around and people would set up tents and it would become this whole social affair. And there was a lot of communal cooking and society and business dealings there. I, I mean, it, it was a, a whole fanfare, but then it was based along um, evangelical preaching. And the evangelical preaching took note from 
Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield, who had a very hell and brimstone and also just this very uh, passion, fiery way of speaking. A lot of yelling, a lot of being said, oh, led by the uh, being led by the spirit whenever really it was just this whole emotional presentation that was really drawing people in. So there was this lasting legacy of the second grade of of the second grade awakening that continues on today. So part of this is favoring ordinary people rather than elites because before in Christianity, People who were highly educated were the only people who were able to read the Bible for a long time because it was only in Latin for a long stretch of time. And um, also you had to have a certain amount of wealth to really be engaged into the church system. And so these new Americans, they wanted to push against those old ideas. And they were just saying, hey, we want this to be for everyone. And so part of this also meant rejecting science and intellectualism and rationalism and different parts of the culture, including um, the arts and different kinds of secular philosophies. And this is still carried on into today, this rejection of secularism by evangelicals to a point that they develop their own kinds of philosophies, their own kinds of science, their own kinds of education to be able to keep their system running in a way that they see fit. So they believed that piety was more important than formal training for church leaders or for religious leaders. And this is still something that is said to be true of today in evangelicalism. So there are pastors and leaders in the evangelical church who are trained in seminary. However, that is not a requirement to be a leader in an evangelical church or a religious setting. So there's a lot of people who are, say, in elder positions or maybe a youth pastor type position that have no uh, theology training or background. And um, and it's just purely based on what the evangelical church sees as being that person's character. So another part of this legacy is reaching large areas. And, um, and so in reaching large areas, this is something that is still done today. And in this evangelicalism, it is about reaching the masses of people. So, I mean, there are stadiums that will just get filled up today. And this is, um, a a reflection of what happened, back in this time period of the 1790s and the 1830s, it's a mirror for what happened back then. So um, it was a very optimistic style of preaching in the Second Great Awakening. It was less doom and gloom uh, compared to the First Great Awakening. So they were talking about prosperity gospel here. They were saying 
that if a person converted to evangelicalism, that they could change their situation for the better. And this was very alluring to people because, I mean, they were starting a new country and they really wanted to see that their lives would change for the better. And they wanted to see that for the next generations after them. And of course, they were going to latch on to this. And especially with having such dynamic preaching that was just um, very gripping for people. There was an evangelist named Charles Finney where he really pushed for the mass conversion. And um, one time in Rochester, New York, he converted a hundred thousand people in a revival. And this style continues in churches because it's about this um, concept called group think. And so the way that pastors teach, it's in such a way that it is based on people wanting to be socially accepted by each other. And the, the dynamic way of emotions in this, it brings people together closer. They're wanting more social acceptance. And so if there's going to be multiple conversions, there's going to probably be a boom of conversions. But I'll talk more about groupthink in another podcast. So um, I thought that this one man's account was very interesting. And he went on to become a minister. So he said in a camp revival that he went to in Kentucky, he said the noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers all preaching at one time. Some on stumps, others on wagons. Some of the people were singing, others praying, some crying for mercy. A peculiarly strange sensation came over me. My heart beat tumultuously. My knees trembled. My lips quivered, and I felt as though I must fall to the ground. And so you hear an account like this. And it's very stimulating to the emotions. And so this is what really brought about this massive conversion. And some people can trace their evangelical roots back to generations and generations. And for the more generations that your family has been in it, sometimes that means the more difficult it is to be breaking out of these patterns because that means that there is religious generational trauma. More on that later. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining me and little A today on this podcast. And happy Sunday.